0: When the risen Lord appeared to the faithful on this continent, he taught them the commandments the prophet Malachi had already given to other children of Israel. The Lord commanded that they should record these words. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. After the Savior quoted these words, he expounded them unto the multitude and said, These scriptures which ye had not with you, the Father commanded that I should give unto you for it was wisdom in him that they should be given unto future generations." Here we see that the law of tithing is not a remote Old Testament practice but a commandment directly from the Savior to the people of our day. The Lord reaffirmed that law in modern revelation, commanding his people to pay one-tenth of all their interest annually and declaring that this shall be a standing law unto them forever. No prophet of the Lord in modern times has preached the law of tithing more fervently than Heber J. Grant. As an apostle and later as president of the Church, he frequently called upon the saints to pay an honest tithe and made firm promises to those who would do so. In a general conference in 1912, Elder Heber J. Grant declared, I bear witness, and I know that the witness I bear is true, that the men and women who have been absolutely honest with God, who have paid their tithing, God has given them wisdom whereby they have been able to utilize the remaining nine-tenths, and it has been of greater value to them, and they have accomplished more with it than they would if they had not been honest with the Lord. In 1929, President Heber J. Grant said, I appeal to the Latter-day Saints to be honest with the Lord, and I promise them that peace, prosperity, and financial success will attend those who are honest with our Heavenly Father. When we set our hearts upon the things of this world and fail to be strictly honest with the Lord, we do not grow in the light and power and strength of the gospel as we otherwise would do. During the Great Depression, President Grant continued to remind the Saints that the payment of tithing would open the windows of heaven for blessings needed by the faithful. In that stressful period, some of our bishops observed that members who paid their tithing were able to support their families more effectively than those who did not. The tithe payers tended to keep their employment, enjoy good health, and be free from the most devastating effects of economic and spiritual depression. Countless tithe-paying Latter-day Saints can testify to similar blessings today. I am grateful to President Grant and other prophets for teaching the principle of tithing to my parents and to them for teaching it to me. My attitude toward the law of tithing was set in place by the example and words of my mother illustrated in a conversation I remember from my youth. During World War II, my widowed mother supported her three young children on a schoolteacher's salary that was meager. When I became conscious that we went without some desirable things because we didn't have enough money, I asked my mother why she paid so much of her salary as tithing. I have never forgotten her explanation. Dallin, There might be some people who can get along without paying tithing, but we can't. The Lord has chosen to take your father and leave me to raise you children. I cannot do that without the blessings of the Lord, and I obtain those blessings by paying an honest tithing. When I pay my tithing, I have the Lord's promise that he will bless us, and we must have those blessings if we are to get along. Years later, I read President Joseph F. Smith's memory of a similar testimony and teaching by his widowed mother. In the April conference 1900, President Smith shared this memory from his childhood. My mother was a widow with a large family to provide for. One spring, when we opened our potato pits, she had her boys get a load of the best potatoes, and she took them to the tithing office. Potatoes were scarce that season. I was a little boy at the time and drove the team. When we drove up to the steps of the tithing office, ready to unload the potatoes, one of the clerks came out and said to my mother, Widow Smith, it's a shame that you should have to pay tithing. He chided my mother for paying her tithing, called her anything but wise or prudent, and said there were others who were strong and able to work that were supported from the tithing office. My mother turned upon him and said, William, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Would you deny me a blessing? If I did not pay my tithing, I should expect the Lord to withhold his blessings from me. I pay my tithing not only because it is a law of God, but because I expect a blessing by doing it. By keeping this and other laws, I expect to prosper and to be able to provide for my family." End of quote. Some people say, I can't afford to pay tithing. Those who place their faith in the Lord's promises say, I can't afford not to pay my tithing. Some time ago I was speaking to a meeting of Church leaders in a country outside of North America. As I spoke about tithing, I found myself saying something I had not intended to say. I told them the Lord was grieved that only a small fraction of the members in their nations relied on the Lord's promises, and paid a full tithing. I warned that the Lord would withhold material and spiritual blessings when His covenant children were not keeping this vital commandment. I hope those leaders taught that principle to the members of the stakes and districts in their countries. The law of tithing and the promise of blessings to those who live it apply to the people of the Lord in every nation. I hope our members will qualify for the blessings of the Lord by paying a full tithing. Tithing is a commandment with a promise. The words of Malachi, reaffirmed by the Savior, promise those who bring their tithes into the storehouse that the Lord will open the windows of heaven and pour them out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. The promised blessings are temporal and spiritual. The Lord promises to rebuke the devourer, and He also promises tithe-payers that all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land. I believe these are promises to the nations in which we reside. When the people of God withheld their tithes and offerings, Malachi condemned this whole nation. Similarly, I believe that when many citizens of a nation are faithful in the payment of tithes, they summon the blessings of heaven upon their entire nation. The Bible teaches that righteousness exalteth a nation, and a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. The payment of tithing also brings individual tithe payer unique spiritual blessings. Tithe-paying is evidence that we accept the law of sacrifice. It also prepares us for the law of consecration and the other, higher laws of the celestial kingdom. The lectures on faith prepared by the early leaders of the restored Church part the curtain on that subject when they say, Let us here observe that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary to life and salvation. For from the first existence of man, the faith necessary unto the enjoyment of life and salvation never could be obtained without the sacrifice of all earthly things. End of quote. We should not think that the payment and blessings of tithing are unique to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Tithe-paying is commanded in the Bible. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Jacob covenanted to give the tenth unto God. After the children of Israel were brought up out of Egypt, the prophet Moses commanded that they should give a tenth to the Lord. The Savior reaffirmed that teaching when the Pharisees asked him whether it was lawful to pay taxes. The Savior replied with this command, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. A few years ago, the New York Times carried a feature article on a dozen highly-paid professional athletes who were giving a fixed share, usually 10 percent, of their income to their church. None of the featured athletes was LDS. If the names of our tithe-paying LDS professional athletes had been added to the list, it would have been much longer. There are accounts of good Christian businessmen who promised to give the Lord a share of their profits and then attributed their business success to the fact that the Lord was their partner. BYU President Ernest L. Wilkinson, who often spoke of the blessings he had received from paying his tithing, quoted this statement from a non-Mormon businessman. We would not lend a neighbor money with which to run his business without interest. Neither would we expect him to lend us money without paying interest. I found I was using God's money and the business talents he had given me without paying him interest. That's all I've done in tithing, just met my interest obligations. End of quote. In the Lord's commandment to the people of this day, tithing is one tenth of all their interest annually, which is understood to mean income. The First Presidency has said no one is justified in making any other statement than this. We pay tithing, as the Savior taught, by bringing the tithes into the storehouse. We do this by paying our tithing to our bishop or branch president. We do not pay tithing by contributing to our favorite charities. The contributions we should make to charities come from our own funds, not from the tithes we are commanded to pay to the storehouse of the Lord. The Lord has directed by revelation that the expenditure of His tithes will be directed by His servants, the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, and the presiding bishopric. Those funds are spent to build and maintain temples and houses of worship, to conduct our worldwide missionary work, to translate and publish scriptures, to provide resources to redeem the dead, to fund religious education, and to support other Church purposes selected by the designated servants of the Lord. In earlier times, tithing was paid in kind, a tenth of the herdsman's increase a tenth of the farmer's produce. I'm sorry that our modern cash economy deprives parents of the wonderful teaching opportunities presented by the payment of tithing in kind. In a recent book, Tongan Saints, Legacy of Faith, the author quotes a Tongan bishop's memories of one such example. Grandpa Venisi's spirituality inspired an awe in me as a child. I remember following him daily to his plantation. He would always point out to me the very best of his tarot, bananas or yams, and say, These will be for our tithing. His greatest care was given to these chosen ones. During the harvest, I was often the one assigned to take our load of tithing to the branch president. I remember sitting on the family horse. Grandfather would lift onto its back a sack of fine tarot, which I balanced in front of me. Then, with a very serious look in his eyes, he said to me, See me. Be very careful, because this is our tithing. From my grandfather, I learned early in life that you give only your best to the Lord. End of quote. I had a similar experience as a young boy on my grandparents' farm. They taught me about tithing with examples of one egg or one bushel of peaches out of ten. Years later, I used those same kinds of examples to try to teach the principles of tithing to our own children. Parents are always looking for better ways to teach, and the results of their efforts are sometimes unexpected. Attempting to teach tithing to our young son, I explained the principle of a tenth and how it would apply to the eggs gathered in a chicken farm and the young calves or horses born in a breeding herd. When I finished what I was sure was a clear explanation, I wanted to test whether our seven-year-old had understood. I asked him to imagine that he was a farmer with a harvest of eggs and young animals. I supplied the figures and then asked our little boy what he would give to the bishop as tithing. He thought deeply for a moment and then said, I would give him a very old horse. We obviously had some further conversations on the principle of tithing, and I am proud of the way he and his brother and sisters learned and practiced that principle. But I have often thought of that little boy's words as I have observed how some adult Church members relate to the law of tithing. I think we have some whose attitude and performance consists of giving the bishop something like a very old horse. The payment of tithing is a test of priorities. The Savior taught that reality when he gave this parable. The ground of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. A modern illustration of that principle is suggested in the apocryphal story of two men standing before the casket of a wealthy friend. Ask one, How much property did he leave? Replied the other, He left all of it. (laughs) President Lorenzo Snow taught that the law of tithing is one of the most important ever revealed to man. Faithful adherence to this law opens the windows of heaven for blessings temporal and spiritual. As a lifelong recipient of those blessings, I testify to the goodness of our God and His bounteous blessings to His children. I pray that each member of this Church will qualify for the blessings promised and bestowed on those who bring all the tithes into the storehouse. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Elder Wirthlin I was at that football game and spent ten cents to watch that great run, but I forgive you. <laughs> Along with Elder Wirthlin, I should like to speak tonight to the great army of Aaronic priesthood bearers and especially to those who are called in these challenging times by divine revelation to be their priesthood leaders. I have had a long life of deep gratitude to the Aaronic Priesthood leaders who blessed my early life in ways I will never be able to repay. These good men helped to fill the void left in my life after my father, who had spent nearly all of his married life as our ward bishop, was suddenly taken by an illness when I was five years old. Some years later, in 1940, as a ward deacon's quorum president, I received a letter from the presiding bishopric of the Church, signed by LeGrand Richards, Marvin O. Ashton, and Joseph L. Worthlin. This letter said, in part, The presiding bishopric of the Church extends to the presidency of the Taylorsville Ward Deacon's Quorum congratulations and best wishes on achieving more than 90% attendance in priesthood and sacrament meeting for the year 1939. Can you imagine, brethren, the impact of this letter on a young priesthood bears, these young deacons in our rural ward, and especially the three 13-year-old deacons that comprised the quorum presidency? From that moment on, these men of the presiding bishopric became my instant heroes. In more mature reflection on that event, I realized that this letter was largely the result of a faithful, conscientious ward bishopric whose second counselor assigned to the deacon's quorum frequently sat in council meeting in our weekly quorum presidency planning meeting. He was always present for at least a portion of our weekly quorum meeting. Our quorum advisor was the kind of humble leader I envisioned the Savior trying to help Peter become as he admonished the soon-to-be prophet leader of the Church, Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. As we sat each Sunday morning in that dimly lit basement room of a nineteenth-century-built chapel, this great deacon's quorum advisor poured out his heart to his young flock of eager youth. With pure love and plain words, he told us of the folly of using harmful substances revealed by the Lord in the word of wisdom. He emphasized the need for us to be clean in body and mind in our personal lives and to be worthy to serve the Lord in the mission field, I remember at appropriate time with tears in his eyes he would bear his humble testimony to the members of the deacon's quorum, of the divinity of the Savior, and of the prophetic mission of the Prophet Joseph Smith. He taught us faithfully that we were our brother's keeper and the purpose of the quorum was to bless each member's life. He emphasized that when we passed the sacrament or collected fast offering or cut wood for the widows living in the ward. We were doing just what the Lord would have us do. When one member of our quorum from a less active family suffered a prolonged illness and could not attend priesthood meetings, we would go to his home, and he would there receive the weekly priesthood lesson and the fellowship of fellow quorum members. And when another less active member whose single parent was not a member of the Church failed to attend, priesthood sessions were held in his home as well. Both of these young men in more recent years have blessed countless Church members as they have been called to positions of major responsibility. Many years later, as I stood at the hospital bedside of this dear quorum advisor as he was about to exchange this life for eternity, despite considerable suffering, he wanted to use that brief time to have me review with him the current circumstances of each of those deacons that belonged to that quorum more than thirty years earlier. His life literally filled the instruction of the Savior to Peter on the shores of the Sea of Tiberius, in his final admonition to the apostles, Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. The battle for the souls of our Heavenly Father's precious sheep and lambs is raging in every corner of the world. An increasingly permissive culture so heavily influenced by the media, especially television, has caused us all, and especially our youth, to be subjected to a moral wasteland of values. Television in this land, in most instances, has been single-handedly removed to remove vulgarity from modern, modern culture by making it the norm. The result is a mass culture driven by profiteers who exploit the hunger for vulgarity and pornography pornography, and even barbarism. Such influences cannot help but have a demoralizing effect on the religious faith and belief of our great young people. Such is the condition envisioned by Bible and Book of Mormon prophets, and such is the world in which the faithful bearers of the Aaronic priesthood in our time must live and emerge valiant and victorious. Against this worldly backdrop, leaders of the Aaronic Priesthood must reach out in love to each young man to help them become truly converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ and live by its teachings, to help each young man magnify his priesthood calling and give meaningful service and prepare to receive the Melchizedek Priesthood, and commit to and worthily prepare for and to serve an honorable mission, and to live worthy to receive temple covenants and prepare to become a worthy husband and father. Brethren, make sure that the love and fellowship of the priesthood reaches out to each young man in your quorum and that each one is included and is fellowshiped. Since recently returning from a three-year Church assignment in Africa and becoming reacquainted with our 30, 23 grandchildren, Sister Lindsay and I have often been requested on such visits to tell these grandchildren a bedtime story that is first true, that is second exciting, and third, one that they have never heard before. Now, All of you grandpas here tonight can understand the challenge that such a request represents. One such true story did come to my mind, however, as we visited recently in the home of a son and his wife who live in a midwestern city with their five children, including three bears of the Aaronic Priesthood—a priest, a teacher, and a deacon. This story concerned their own father when he was a six-year-old boy. I grew up in rural Salt Lake County when it was an economic necessity to care for a variety of barnyard animals. My favorite animal was sheep, prompted, perhaps, by the fact that sheep do not require required being milked twice a day and six days a week. I wanted our own sons to have the blessing of being shepherds to such farm animals. Our older sons were each provided with a ewe to teach them the responsibility of caring for these sheep and the lambs that would hopefully follow. Our second son, newly turned six years of age, called me excitedly at my office one cold March morning on the phone and said, Daddy, guess what? Esther. Esther was his mother ewe. Esther has just given birth to two baby lambs. Please come home and help me take care of them. I instructed Gordon to watch the lambs carefully and make sure they received the mother's milk, and they would be fine. Then I was interrupted by a second phone call later in the morning with the same little voice on the other end saying, "'Daddy, these lambs aren't doing very well. They haven't been able to get milk from the mother, and they're very cold. Please come home.' My response likely reflected some of the distress I felt by being distracted from my busy work schedule. I responded. Gordon, the lambs will be all right. Just watch them, and when Daddy comes home, we'll make sure they get Mother's milk and everything will be fine. Again, later in the afternoon, I received a third, more urgent call. Now the voice on the other end was pleading, Daddy, you've got to come home now. Those lambs are lying down, and one of them looks very cold. Despite work pressures, I now felt some real concern and tried to reassure the six year old owner of the mother sheep by saying, Gordon, bring the lambs in the home, rub them with a gunny sack, make them warm, and when daddy comes home in a little while, we'll milk the mother and feed the lambs, and they'll be fine. Two hours later, I drove into the driveway of our home and was met by a boy with tear stained eyes carrying a dead lamb in his arms. His grief was overwhelming. Now I tried to make amends by quickly milking the mother sheep and trying to force the milk from the bottle down the throat of the now weak and surviving lamb. At this point, Gordon walked out of the room and came back with a hopeful look in his eyes and said, Daddy, I've prayed we'll be able to save this lamb, and I feel he'll be all right. The sad note to this story, brethren, is that within a few minutes the second lamb was dead. Then with a look that I will remember forever, This little six-year-old boy, who had lost both of his lambs, looked up into his father's face and, with tears running down his cheeks, said, "'Daddy, if you'd come when I first called you, we could have saved them both.'" Dear brethren of the Aaronic Priesthood, priesthood, those who are entrusted as keepers of the Lord's precious flock of these wonderful Aaronic Priesthood young men, We must be there with the lambs when we are needed. We must teach with love principles of faith and goodness and be righteous examples to the lambs of our Heavenly Father. Each quorum member must be prepared for his future roles, a bearer of the holy Melchizedek priesthood, in a world plagued with sin and desperate for decisive moral leadership. I leave my witness that this is God's work. It is the most important work in all the world in which we can be engaged that we will be instruments in His hands in saving the precious lambs for which He gave His life, I humbly pray in the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.
2: As members and leaders of this Church, we're often depicted as always going to or coming from meetings. This is generally true, but we need to remember why we do so. The Lord, by revelation, reminds us that when we are assembled, as we're here tonight, we're to be instructed and edified that we may know how to act upon His law and commandments. How important is it to remember these instructions? To remember is to keep in mind, to store in memory for later attention or consideration. I remember something so I can use it later for a certain purpose or result. For students like you, young men, it means that you memorize facts or information to pass an exam, resulting in good grades and happiness. You may also have learned, perhaps by sad experience, that to forget is to cease to remember, resulting in poor grades and unhappiness. There is always a relationship between remembering, doing, and happiness, or forgetting, not doing, and unhappiness. The process is the same, of course, with spiritual matters. I remember the gospel and the covenants, and I act or participate. I commit and receive the blessings associated with the covenants or commandments. If I forget my faith and my covenants and do not commit and work for my salvation, I fail to receive the promised blessings. Reflecting on this spiritual teaching pattern in my life, I would like to share with you some of my memories as a convert to the Church. This might help someone, young or older, learn how to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places under any circumstances. It all started on the day of my baptism. I was 22 years old and a college student. I was part of a small group that assembled at the swimming pool in Brussels, Belgium. We didn't have a chapel at that time. There was no baptismal font, no bishop, just two missionaries and a few branch members to support us. I had no family members with me. It was a first step in the known and the unknown. The known was a sure testimony of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, of Joseph Smith, a prophet of the Book of Mormon, and of the Church, the only true one. The unknown was yet to be discovered and experienced. It started to be unveiled by receiving the priesthood after baptism. According to the procedures followed at that that time, a convert almost had to stand at the bar of judgment to receive the priesthood. Three months passed before I was interviewed and ordained a deacon. Then, on that Sunday morning, I stood in front of the sacrament table, to distribute the emblems of the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I still remember the surroundings, which were quite different from the ornate decorations of the Church where I had previously worshipped. The dining room of a home had been transformed into a meeting hall for sacrament meetings that were attended by a few members. It was my first experience to magnify my priesthood calling. Nine months later, I was ordained a teacher and learned how to teach and to watch over the few members of the branch during their contentions and ups and downs. These were also interesting days. When attending priesthood meeting meant sitting in a circle with two missionaries, two other brothers, and reading from one mimeograph sheet of paper, that was the lesson. There was no priesthood manual. Only 20 sections of the Doctrine and Covenants had been translated into French. There was no part of a great price. But most importantly, we did have the complete Book of Mormon. We passed this great book from hand to hand and learned about the covenants and teachings of the Lord and his doctrine. Precept upon precept, stone upon stone, I was building my spiritual memory bank and enjoying spiritual happiness. Another four months passed, and I was ordained a priest. Now I stood on the other side of the sacrament table. The decor was the same, but I felt different. It impressed me that now I was blessing the emblems of the Atonement and memorizing that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son and witness unto thee, and always remember him and keep his commandments, that they may always have his Spirit to be with them. It was an unforgettable experience, and I still visualize it today when I bless the sacrament as a general authority. Two years passed after my baptism. The day arrived for me to receive the Melchizedek priesthood to be ordained an elder. The mission president once again laid his hands upon my head. The authority and power to act in the name of the Lord were given. It was received by mutual agreement, by an oath, and covenant— The oath represented the assurance that the promises of the agreement would be kept by both participants—the covenant, that the conditions of the agreement would be kept. As I recall that priesthood preparation in the service of the Lord, I can see how remembering my covenants helped me to honor and magnify my priesthood calling, to keep the commandments, and to bring spiritual happiness into my life in preparation for eternal life. During those trial years, many of my young friends in the Church forgot their covenants and one by one returned to the world. The world always stands between man and God, representing two alternatives but only one true choice. How can we be strengthened in making the choice to serve the Lord? By simply focusing on the doctrine of Jesus Christ, that will ensure the salvation of those who remember it, accept it, and act upon it. How did the process work for me? As a young man, I considered and learned the doctrine of eternal marriage and family. This was of great interest to me and a determining factor in my conversion. I had witnessed the breakup of my parents' marriage. I had seen sorrow caused by death without spiritual knowledge and friends marrying without temple ordinances. I wanted to avoid these tragedies. What is this doctrine? In the Bible, it states that Adam was created, but he was alone. We read, But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. Thus the Lord created women, not another man, and commanded that they should be united in the sacred bonds of marriage. The first divine, righteous, ordained union between a man and a woman was sealed by these words, A man shall cleave unto his wife. This is the established doctrine, and it will never change. It is repeated in modern revelation, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shall cleave unto her and none else. This union is solemnized by the authority of the everlasting priesthood into a holy and sacred ordinance, the temple sealing. It is also called the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, and its purpose is to bind couples together on earth and bring them to a fullness of exaltation in the kingdom of God in the hereafter. Then Adam and Eve were also commanded to multiply and replenish the earth. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The true concept of marriage and family, the unit comprised of a husband, wife, and children sealed together, was instituted at the beginning by God to create eternal families. That foundation principle became my vision and my goal and also reality as my companion and I were sealed in the temple in Solikofen, Switzerland. As a husband and father, and later as a grandfather, I was and am still responsible for the development, temporal support, protection, and salvation of my family. Another determining factor in my conversion was the Church as a divine institution led by the authority of the priesthood. It provided the framework that I needed for support as a member of that covenant group. I could not save my family by myself. Elder John A. Witzow wrote, quote, The Church, the community of persons with the same intelligent faith and desire and practice, is the organized agency through which God deals with His children and presents His will. Moreover, the authority to act for God must be vested on earth in some one organization, and not independently in every man. The Church, through the priesthood, holds this authority for the use of men. End of quote. The Church provides a unique support for individuals and families to do things that they cannot do by themselves, such as receiving the essential ordinances of salvation. It brings temporal relief in times of hardship. It is also a laboratory outside of the home where we can serve, learn, and practice charity, the pure love of Christ. I also found in this church that the priesthood has a patriarchal order and that God is a God of order. He is at the head, and following this pattern, the priesthood is conferred upon worthy men so that they can preside in their homes and families. The husband and father, a patriarch, is to preside in righteousness and exercise the power of his priesthood to bless his wife and family. The husband and wife serve as partners in governing their family. Both act in joint leadership and depend on each other. They're united in the vision of their eternal salvation, one holding the priesthood, the other honoring and enjoying the blessings of it. One is not superior or inferior to the other. Each one carries his or her respective responsibilities and acts in his or her respective role. Much more could be said about the priesthood and its uniqueness, the divine commission given to man through which he acts in the plan of salvation. In essence, therein is the true doctrine of the Father, the irreversible correct principles to govern ourselves, the know-how to act upon the law and commandments that we, were, that we were given. In this age of increased individualism and selfishness, opinions now matter more than facts or doctrine. Attitudes glorify personal choice above other values and principles. And language is typified by, I don't need anyone to tell me how to be saved. I don't need prophets seers, or revelators, to tell me what God expects of me. I don't need to attend church meetings to hear talks or to be challenged. Today, the concept of priesthood and church authority is on trial by the world and even by some members who think that the Latin expression, vox populi, vox dei, can be literally interpreted in the church as the voice of the people is the voice of God. The commercial slogan, have it your way, certainly does not apply in God's plan for the salvation of His children. When we read that the very cause of apostasy is when every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God. How do you overcome the temptation to have it your own way, to satisfy your own appetites, and to follow the world's trends? One of my simple answers tonight is to constantly remember your covenants to act on them, and to commit to them. The sequence, as repeatedly stated in the scriptures, is a classical spiritual teaching pattern to prepare us for eternal life. It is centered upon Christ and His doctrine and teachings. I will remember them forever. I testify that Jesus lived, that this is the only true Church, that the priesthood of the Son of God is vested herein, and that prophets, seers, and revelators who preside over this Church are appointed to preserve the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ and the authority of His priesthood for the salvation of His people. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
3: My beloved brethren, I am humbled and honored to speak to the priesthood of the Lord's Church. This priesthood now numbers more than two million throughout the world who have made a covenant with the Lord to be His servants here upon the earth. We do His work. Great is the charge He has given us to warn, expound, exhort, and teach and invite all to come unto Christ. Ours is a call to labor with all our heart, might, mind, and strength to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. We are called to serve by the Father of us all. Tonight I would like to address the Aaronic Priesthood. I pray fervently for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord's promise might be fulfilled, that he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another, and both are edified and rejoice together. My message to you young men is this. By obedience to the laws of the gospel, you can lift yourselves above the quagmire of sin that surrounds us in this world. In addition to helping you to become better servants of the Lord, obedience to these laws will help you to be better in everything you undertake in life, whether it be your activity in the Church, your family, education, business, profession, science, athletics, or any other worthwhile endeavor. You'll be a better son, a better brother, and a better friend. You'll enjoy your life more. You'll be happier and at peace with yourself because you'll know that your life is acceptable to your Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We who serve in this great body of the priesthood do so because each of us has been called and chosen. God wants wants us to serve willingly and obediently. We who have made baptismal covenants and have accepted the call to serve in the Lord's kingdom as bearers of the holy priesthood, have agreed to conform our will to His. We should be humble, submissive, and diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times. My young brethren, learn wisdom in your youth. Yea, learn in your youth to keep the commandments of God. Nothing is more important to you than obedience to God's commandments. President Ezra Taft Benson has stated, that obedience is the first law of heaven. This principle applies to all of us. I observed a marvelous display of obedience during a recent visit to a large cattle ranch in Argentina. Early one morning, the gauchos brought 40 horses into a corral to select their mounts for the day. Gauchos are like cowboys in the United States. Each gaucho went to the corral and whistled softly like this. This established their presence. When the horses heard the soft whistling, they lined up quickly near the fence, facing the gauchos. The horses held their heads high, kept their eyes constantly on their masters, and kept their ears forward in an alert, receptive stance. They gave complete attention and appeared to be anxious to serve. They quickly organized themselves into a line, as if for a full military dress inspection or review. The gauchos stepped back out of the way and whistled again. The horses circled quickly to the other side of the corral and lined up facing the gauchos. They looked as if a drill sergeant had called them to attention. Each gaucho chose his mount for the day's work and walked up to the horse he had selected. The others stayed in line, waiting for their assignments. When I asked how the gauchos taught the horses to be so obedient I was informed that their training started when the horses were colts, each one learned from their caring mothers and from other mature horses. The Gauchos began training the colts when they were young with kindness, never using force of a lasso or a whip. Watching this display of obedience, I thought of you Aaronic priesthood brethren and how you were taught by your mothers, like the two thousand stripling sons of Helaman, and by caring fathers and priesthood leaders. I thought of you following their good example, disciplining yourselves and keeping yourselves alert, willing to serve your Lord and Master as He chooses and calls you. As you grow and mature, you'll want and will earn more freedom to live your lives your way and to make your own choices. This you should do. Our hope and prayer is that you will grow up strong and obedient in the faith that, like the young Jesus, you will increase in wisdom and stature— and in favor with God and man. We urge you to be obedient and faithful to your priesthood duties. God has given you the authority to act in His name during this youthful season of your lives. The Aaronic Priesthood will prepare you for the time when you will be ready to receive the greater authority of the Melchizedek Priesthood. Prepare well for that great blessing by being faithful now in magnifying your Aaronic Priesthood. Serve valiantly in any position to which you may be called. Prepare, bless, and pass the emblems of the Holy Sacrament worthily. Diligently gather fast offerings to assist your bishop in his duty, to care for those in need. Tend to your home teaching duties consistently. Home teaching is an excellent preparation for missionary service. Attend all of your meetings regularly. Study your scriptures and pray daily, and pay your tithing. If you will be obedient bearers of the Aaronic Priesthood, I can promise you that by the time you are an ordained elder in the Melchizedek Priesthood, you will be ready to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as a missionary boldly and persuasively. You will be better prepared for the later privileges and challenges of marriage and fatherhood. To help missionaries remain faithful and obedient, we give them a little handbook. We ask them to carry it with them and read from it often. We have also provided a handbook for our young men and young women. Its title is For the Strength of Youth. We ask you to carry it with you, refer to it frequently, and live according to the counsel it contains. That counsel can protect you from evil and help you to obey even when obedience is difficult. As you build your lives in obedience to the gospel and strive to achieve your goals, Do not become discouraged by temporary setbacks and disappointments. Remember that it must needs be that there is opposition in all things. You will grow and learn by overcoming obstacles. The Lord has admonished all of us to keep His commandments and endure to the end. No doubt you young men have learned that obedience is not always easy. In fact, it can sometimes be stifling, uncomfortable, or even impossible. But with God all things are possible. You can be obedient. You can defeat Satan and overcome temptation. God will not suffer you to be tempted. Above that, you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. The Lord does not expect anything of you that you cannot do. Remember Nephi's faith when he testified that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which He commandeth them. We live in a world filled with evil. Swirling all around us are the whirlwinds of strife and contention, temptation and sin. The priesthood is a shield against temptation. It motivates and inspires young men to the highest and noblest of all of deeds. Every young man, whether he holds the office of deacon, teacher, or priest, is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could we serve Him unless we were free from the evils of mortal life? Some mistakenly think it is impossible to avoid the sins of the world, to escape evil. A few even attempt to isolate themselves from society. The Savior prayed, not not that thou, thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. That, too, is our prayer. For you young men. Willing obedience provides lasting protection against Satan's alluring and tantalizing temptations. Jesus is our perfect example of obedience. Learn to do as He did when Satan tempted Him in the wilderness. Even though He was weakened by fasting, His answer was quick and firm, Get thee behind me, Satan. Elder Neal A. Maxwell said, of, said this of the Savior's example in resisting temptation. Jesus noticed the tremendous temptations that came to him, but he did not process and reprocess them. Instead, he rejected them promptly. If we entertain temptations, soon they begin entertaining us. When Satan comes calling, cast him out as quickly as possible. Do not let temptation even begin to entertain you. I plead with you, young brethren of the priesthood, to live above the curse of immorality that is plaguing the earth. Rise above the, squa- the squalor of pornography, obscenity, and filth. Be virtuous and chaste. Uphold your young sisters in the gospel by respecting their budding womanhood and protecting their virtue. Always conduct yourselves according to the commandments of God when you are with them. You want your girlfriends to remain clean and pure, just as surely would protect the ch- you would protect the chastity of your own sister in your family. Likewise, protect the virtue of your sisters in God's family. If you make a mistake, obtain forgiveness through sincere, humble repentance. God does forgive. It is a miracle made possible by the atoning sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. But mistakes that seem to be small to you, if uncorrected, can have enormous consequences. The First Presidency has stated very clearly that serious sins, especially immorality could disqualify a young man from serving a mission. Yes, repentance is possible, but the privilege and blessing of serving a full-time mission for the Lord could be lost through transgression. Momentary lapses in an otherwise outstanding life could jeopardize this significant privilege and blessing. Brethren, never let your guard down. Even though loving God has provided a pathway to repentance— you simply do not have the time to waste in transgression. Sin wounds the soul, healing slows progress, and takes time that could have been used in productive service and progress. The Lord needs you faithful and worthy young men now and in the future to combat the forces of Satan that are ravaging the earth. Let me share an experience from mine own youth, an experience that taught me the importance of obedience in doing even small things well. I loved to play football in high school and at the university. I wanted to be a good athlete. I especially remember one game. Our university team faced the University of Colorado in a contest for the conference championship. We were well-coached and really well-prepared. The star of the Colorado team was Byron Wizzer white an All-American who was a tremendous athlete. He was a fast, versatile, and powerful quarterback. His athletic prowess was legendary. His scholastic abilities were equally impressive. He later became a Rhodes Scholar and retired recently as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Our wise coach was Ike Armstrong. His warnings before the game included two simple instructions. One, do not kick off or punt the ball to wizard White. And two, never let him get past the line of scrimmage. We followed his instructions and held Colorado scoreless throughout the first half. Early in the second half, however, Whizzer White kicked a field goal. We answered with a touchdown and kicked the extra point. We were ahead 7-3 to three at the end of the third quarter. On the second play of the fourth quarter, we punted. The ball sailed deep into the corner of the field near their end zone. Whizzer White plucked the tumbling ball out of the air at his 15 Yard line and dropped back to his five-yard line, five line to evade the first of our tackle, tacklers. Then, with the speed, strength, and agility that had built his reputation, he started upfield and sidestepped every player of our team. I managed only to touch him with my little finger. <laughs> he ran the entire length of the field for a touchdown. Thrilling for Colorado, but disappointing for us. Later in the fourth quarter, Wizard dashed around his own right end and beyond the line of scrimmage and ran 57 yards for another touchdown. The game ended with a score 17-7. to Colorado won the game and the conference championship. Though we lost, I learned the importance of constant obedience to detailed instructions of our leader. <laughs> Failure to obey our coach's two pregame warnings for just two plays— Two brief lapses in an otherwise outstanding effort cost us the game and the, conference ship and the conference championship. That is all it took for us to lose something we had worked so hard to achieve. I testify to you, my brethren, that your Heavenly Father loves you and wants you to receive and enjoy every blessing He has for His children, including the blessings of happiness and peace. We, the leaders of the Lord's Church, love you. We pray for you earnestly and constantly. Your leaders in your wards and branches and in your stakes and districts likewise love you and pray for you. Your parents' prayers uh, pray for you and love you, and I would say they pray for you beyond measure. We all want to succeed in this life and to qualify for the greatest of God's gifts, eternal life in the celestial kingdom. To achieve your goals in this mortal life and prove yourselves worthy of eternal blessings, learn to obey. There is no other way. Obedience brings great strength and power into your lives. The commandments of the gospel come from a tender, loving Father whose laws are given to make us happy, to protect us, and to help us avoid the inescapable pain and misery that always result when we yield to Satan and give in to temptation. Wickedness never was happiness. God is indeed our loving Father. Everything He does is for our good. He knows all things. He knows us much better than we know ourselves, and He knows what is best for us. May the Lord bless each of you special young men with strength and courage to obey His will and to prepare diligently for the work and joy that lie ahead. I pray humbly in the name of Jesus Christ.
4: Amen. Elder hails. we welcome you as a member of the Council of the Twelve. Our friendship goes back, I guess, over three decades. Of course, I've always wondered that when I moved to New York, why you moved to Boston. And then, when I move to Boston, you move back to New York. (laughs) No longer can you escape. You join the greatest quorum that you can possibly belong to because of the brotherhood and fellowship that's there. Welcome, Elder Hales. The Book of Mormon begins with these words, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, Therefore, I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my Father. What a different world this would be if the personal journals of each of our Father and Heaven's children could begin with a similar phrase, having goodly parents and being taught by them. We live in such a special time in history, a time when the Lord's gospel has been restored in its fullness. Our missionary force is increasing in quality and quantity, thus the gospel is being taught in more languages to more nations and to greater numbers of listening ears than ever before. As wards and stakes are being established in most parts of the world, creative minds have been inspired to develop communication instruments which are capable of bringing in the instructions of the prophets. To the ears of many, many more people, the good news of the gospel can now spread more rapidly to bring the hope of everlasting peace to the hearts of mankind. One of the great messages of the gospel is the doctrine of the eternal nature of the family unit. We declare to the world the value and importance of family life. But much of the confusion and difficulty we find existing in the world today is being traced to the deterioration of the family. Home experiences where children are taught and trained by loving parents are diminishing. Family life, where children and parents communicate together in study, play, and work, has been replaced by a quick individual microwave dinner, and an evening in front of the TV set. In 1991, the National Association of Counties, meeting in Salt Lake City, thought that the lack of home influence had reached such a point of becoming a crisis in our nation and spent time in their meetings discussing their concerns. They identified five basic concepts that could increase every family's chances for success. First, strengthen relationships through family activities. Second, establish reasonable rules and expectations. Third, build self esteem. Fourth, set achievable goals. And fifth, periodically evaluate family strengths and needs. Suddenly, the urgent and warning voice of our prophets from the very beginning of time has special relevance. As we have been counseled and encouraged, we must be attentive to our own families and accelerate our missionary effort to bring others to a knowledge of the truth and the importance of the family unit. In the very beginning, the Lord's instructions to Adam and Eve made clear their responsibilities as parents. Their roles were well defined. After they had received instructions from the Lord, we find them following his counsel and saying this, And in that day Adam blessed God and was filled, and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth, saying, Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression... My eyes are open, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we should never have had seed and never should have known the good and the evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. And Adam and Eve blessed the name of God, and they made all things known unto their sons and their daughters. Yes, from the very beginning, the responsibilities of parents teaching their children was among the first instructions the Lord gave to our first earthly parents. Revelations received as the church has been restored in this day again admonishes parents in their obligation to teach and train their children. In the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we find the Lord chastising some of the brethren for not paying attention to their family responsibilities. The scriptures read, But I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. You have not taught your children light and truth, according to the commandments. And that wicked one hath power as yet over you. And this is the cause of your affliction. And now a commandment I give unto you. If you will be delivered, you shall set in order your own house. For there are many things that are not right in your house. Years ago, the church admonished all parents to hold weekly Family home evenings. Today that admonition has been institutionalized in the homes of Church members. Monday night has been set aside as an evening for families to be together. No Church activities or social appointments should be sponsored on this night. We have been promised great blessings if our families would be faithful in this regard. President Lee once counseled us, now keeping in mind this, that when the full measure of Elijah's mission is understood, the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers and the fathers to the children. It appears just as much on this side of the veil as it does on the other side of the veil. If we neglect our families here in holding family home evenings, And if we fail in our responsibilities here, how would it look if we lost some of those through our neglect? Heaven would not be heaven until we have done everything we can to save those whom the Lord has sent through our lineage. Then he continued, So the hearts of you fathers and mothers must be turned to your children right now If you were to have the true spirit of Elijah, and think not that it applies merely to those who are beyond the veil, let your hearts be turned to your children and teach your children. But you must do it when they are young enough to be properly schooled. And if you neglect your family home evenings, you neglect the beginnings of the mission of Elijah, just as certain as if you neglected the research of your family histories. I've often thought of the happy times we had when our family was young and our children were at home. I've made a mental review of those days and considered the changes I would make in our family organization and administration if we had the opportunity to live that period over again. There are two areas I would determine to improve if that privilege were granted to me to have young children in our home once again. The first would be to spend more time as husband and wife in a family executive committee meeting, learning, communicating, planning, and organizing to better fulfill our roles as parents. The second wish I would like if I could have those years over would be to spend more family time. This includes more consistent, meaningful family home evenings. The full burden of planning and preparing for family home evenings should not be left to parents alone. The most successful ones I have witnessed are when the youth of the family take an active part. I call on you great deacons, teachers, and priests, you beehive girls, Maya maids, and laurels, to make a major contribution. In the success of your family home evenings. In many homes, you can be the conscience of the family. After all, you have the most to gain from this experience. If you want to live in a world of peace, security, and opportunity, the family you contribute to can add to the well-being, yes, even the whole world. I remember of an example that occurred over the Christmas holidays one year when we had a, the grandchildren on an outing with us. In order to have a real togetherness experience, we arranged for a van to travel together. In the van were Grandpa and Grandma, my son and his three older children. My son's wife had stayed home with the younger members of the family. I was taking my turn at the wheel, and my wife was seated next to me acting as our navigator. From the back of the van I heard Audrey, the eldest child, counseling with her father. She was saying, Dad, one of our goals this year was to finish the Book of Mormon in our family study. This is the last day of the year. Why don't we complete it now so that we will be on schedule? What a special experience it was to listen to my son and his three children, each taking turns reading aloud the final chapters of Moroni and completing their goal of reading the entire Book of Mormon. Remember, it was a young woman who made this suggestion, not one of the parents. You are a chosen generation, save for this special time in the history of mankind. You have so much to give to add to the growth and development of the families to which you belong. I challenge you to step forward in your family units with that special enthusiastic spirit of your youth to make the gospel really live in your homes. Remember the counsel of President Joseph F. Smith when he said, I would like my children and all of the children of Zion to know that there is nothing in the world that is so much value to them as a knowledge of the gospel as it has been restored to the earth in the latter days through the prophet Joseph Smith. There is nothing that can compensate for its loss. There is nothing on earth that can compensate for the loss of the excellency of a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let therefore all parents of Zion look after their children and teach them the principles of the gospel and strive as far as possible to get them to do their duty, not mechanically because they are urged to do it, but try to instill into their hearts the spirit of truth, an abiding love for the gospel, that they may not only do their duty because it is pleasing to their parents but because it is pleasing also to themselves." Family home evenings are for everyone, whether it be a two-parent home, a single-parent home, or a single-member family unit. Home teachers, we call on you in your regular visits to encourage and revitalize the holding of family home evenings. Our present prophet, President Ezra Taft Benson, has reminded us again of the necessity of holding family home evenings and the ingredients which constitute a successful one. He has said, Designed to strengthen and safeguard the family, the Church's family home evening program establishes one night each week that is to be set apart for fathers and mothers to gather their sons and daughters around them in the home. Prayer is offered, hymns and other songs are sung, scriptures are read, family topics are discussed, talent is displayed, principles of the gospel are taught, and often games are played, and homemade refreshments are served. It is our hope that each of you might write down each of these suggestions made by the prophet on what a family home evening should contain. He then continues, Nowhere are the blessings promised by a prophet of God for those who will hold family home evenings. If the Saints obey this counsel, we promise that greater blessings will result. Love at home and obedience to parents will increase. Faith will be developed in the hearts of your youth of Israel. And they will gain power to combat the evil influences and temptations which beset them. We encourage each of you to follow the counsel of our prophet in all the family units throughout the Church. Evaluate again the progress you're making in holding regular family home evenings. The application of this program will be a shield and a protection to you against the evils of our time, and will bring you individually and collectively greater and abundant joy now and in the eternities hereafter. May God bless us that we may revitalize and strengthen this tremendously important program as we counsel together as family members, is my prayer. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.